Now, but before I go on, I, I've kind of teased it a little bit. Next week, we're starting a new series called Leveling Up. And in Christ, we all have to start somewhere. Life in Christ, for instance, if you are a new believer, life in Christ starts and at its spiritual infancy. But then steps are made in our life where we begin learning and then we start putting to practice elementary principles as described in Hebrews chapter 6. And then what happens is we graduate onto a deeper life in Christ and a deeper level of understanding. But many are asking questions like, how do I get there? And that's what this series is going to be all about. It, the steps we take, it takes you from level one to level 99 warriors for God, which I believe that God is asking us all to ascribe to be, right? And so I want to be deeper in my faith for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of enhancing the gospel and for just the sake of what he has done for me. So that's going to be starting next week. But this week... We're finishing up our series on Abraham. Abraham's the, he's the father of our faith. He's where the relationship between God and man really started to develop. And what we've seen so far is we've seen Abraham, he's stepped out in faith. We've seen him fail, and then we have seen him reestablish his faith <coughs> and commitment to God. And so when I, when I preach today, it seems like this, this series has actually gone by pretty fast to me, and it can feel odd preaching on finishing well. We have many in our congregation who through this series have started a relationship with God. And even now in my 40s, I think about where I'm at, and I don't think about always how I'm going to finish well. But when I get deep in thought, I think things like, brother, you could be over halfway through life right now. You know? Like those things start to hit me. And where I choose not to be just conscious of today, but how I'm going to live out the rest of my days. Who thinks about that? I'm just curious. Who? So, so, so some do, some don't. But when I sit and reflect on others, I think there are people that have clearly kept their eyes on a finish line, and there are others who haven't. You know, um, there was a pastor in Open Bible, one that I deeply respected. He actually pastored the church that I pastored in Waterloo. He eventually became president of the organization and then later in life, he allowed a situation to divert him to a false gospel. Where he believed that anyone would go to heaven regardless of their beliefs because God's grace is so great. And it happened late in life. And I'm like, how does, how does that happen to someone who's served the Lord such a long time, come to a deep level of understanding, sought him regularly, then in an instant, their faith changes. There was another pastor who, in his 50s, he had been married to his wife for 26 years and ended up having an affair with the church bookkeeper. 
And I hear these stories, and it, it deeply affects me because here are men and women that I have greatly respected, and at some point along the way, they got off course, right? And knowing that these things have happened, and it's happened with people that I, I respect and love, what, what I tend to do is I tend to be extremely cautious and reminded that I'm not above falling. Who can say amen to that? You have not arrived. You have not attained. You have not found this happy medium. You have to safeguard yourself and protect yourself. You know, uh, I, I don't care where you stand politically, but I remember something that affected me greatly because I'm like, boy, that's my heart right there, is when Mike Pence was out in, I believe, 2016, and he was going around doing his debates, and it got out that he has a standard that he will not be alone with a woman other than his wife. And I remember him kind of getting made fun of in the media about this. And I'm thinking, wait, wait, no, no, no. That's a great principle. That's a tremendous principle. He has set up a safeguard to say, I'm sorry, I do never, I, I never want to compromise my marriage. I never want anyone to look at me and think that I am not above reproach. And so he set up that standard. And where we finish in Abraham, as I read this scripture today, it's not, I'm going to be honest with you, it's not particularly deep, but it speaks to the future generations that come after Abraham. And so I want us to read Genesis 25, 1 through 11. If you would turn there with me, please. We're also going to have it up on the screen. But we're going to be reading out of Genesis 25, 1 through 11. This finishes up our series in Abraham. Let's begin. So, and as I get ready to read, I, I want to preface that Abraham's wife, Sarah, is now passed. She is, she is passed away. And 25.1, it says, Abraham married another wife whose name was Keturah. She gave birth to Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Young, young ladies who are finding future names for your children. Um, Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. Dedan's descendants were Asherites, Lechuzites, and Lumites. Wow. You know, I love, I love Old Testament names. Um, Midian's sons were Ephath, Ephor, Hanok, Abida, and Elda. These were the descendants of Abraham through Keturah. Abraham gave everything he owned to his son Isaac. But before he died, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them off to a land in the east away from Isaac. Abraham lived for 175 years. No thanks. Um, and he died at a ripe old age, having lived a long and satisfying life. He breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zoar the Hittite. This was the field Abraham had purchased from the Hittites and where he had buried his wife Sarah. After Abram's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who settled near Beer Lahairoi, 
in the Negev. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord. God, there, there's, there's a lot that we have to infer here about Abraham's life, but God, I believe that your word throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament speaks as to who Abraham was up until the point when he passed. And so, God, I pray that we can take a lot of those lessons and apply it to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Who knows, you can learn a lot about a person going to a funeral. Going to their own funeral, you can learn a lot. Just by observing the family, you can learn a lot. And I've been to funerals where there were no family present, just a few close friends. I've been to funerals that were delayed by weeks because every single family member needed to make sure they were there. And if we're determining factors to how Abraham finished, I think we could look to verses 5 through 11. We read things like he gave everything he owned to his firstborn son, to his wife Sarah. He died at a ripe old age, lived a long and satisfying life. Who says amen to that? His sons were there to bury him. God blessed his son Isaac. Those are the things that we learn. And there are things that we can also learn from other scriptures in hindsight of Abraham's life because I don't know about you, I want to finish well. I want to finish well. And I believe that it is never too early to start thinking about what's the long game here. So I want to read a scripture to you. I believe that this is the root of everything we're going to talk about today. It's 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. 2 Timothy 4, 6 through 8. And I want you, we're going to read this slow because I believe this scripture is so rich. There is so much to get out of it. You should put it to memory. Paul is at the end of his life. He's writing Someone that he mentored. And he says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And I have remained faithful. And now the prize awaits me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day of his return. And the prize is not just for me, but for all who eagerly look forward to his appearing. Amen. I hear that and I say, God, I want to finish like that. I want to finish like that. And so you and I are sitting here going, okay, pastor, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to get there? What do we need to do that on our dying breath we can look back at the faithfulness of our life? We can look back at being obedient to God. We have done everything we possibly could. We can, we can rest easy knowing we have and die at peace. I want that. And I have to think most of us want that. And so we're going to talk about how to finish well. And one of the first principles I see in finishing well, and you're, you're, you're going to hear this at first and think, Pastor, this isn't particularly deep, but we're going to get there. Finishing well is determined 
by how you live each day. Finishing well is determined by how you live each day. And I, I say that because sometimes we are so busy thinking about the long game, right? Maybe you talk about future plans and you're, you say, Pastor, I'm living month to month. Or I'm living year to year. I'm living week to week. I would tell you to live day by day. Okay? And so you might think, what does that look like in my life? And again, this isn't particularly deep. But I guarantee that if I was in a room one-on-one -on -one with you and I challenged you, are you doing these things, you might struggle to answer me, at least honestly. Bible reading. Prayer. Meditating on God and His Word. To do these three things is to say that each and every day, I am going to set aside time for God. And I want you to check this out. Not multitasking time with God. You guys understand what I'm saying? Like, I can do that while I'm driving, right? Or I can do that while I'm eating my morning breakfast. We think about these ways that we can integrate God into our life, and I think those things are also good, However, it is not you completely devoting time and your attention over to God. It starts by taking, m m making it practice and disciplining yourself because I believe the more you do it, the more you realize you can't go without it. Because the more, the more you do it, the more you're going to do it. You're going to see the benefits. You're going to see the value in it. Listen to Psalm 42, 1 and 2. It says, as, listen to the, the cry of the psalmist's heart here. This is David's heart. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I go and stand before him? Who understands how often you need to drink water? Right? You know, you can live for about three days without water. If you asked your doctor, how much water should I be drinking? And I'm a health nut, right? And you hear all kinds of things. I have heard someone say, well, you should be drinking an ounce for every pound you weigh. I might as well be swimming, guys. Like, that's, that's just absolutely crazy, right? But, but you ask, and they, they'll say, I, I used to hear my grandma say this all the time. You should be drinking at least eight cups of water a day. At least eight cups of water a day. And I do pretty well for myself. I do about 120 ounces of water a day. That's pretty good. But we need that daily. We need that in our life daily. You can't go without it. And yet what I learn when I read the scriptures is our longing for water, our longing for that thirst should be even greater for God, right? So if we can all agree, yes, pastor, we should be doing this daily, when do you put it in your schedule? You know, we're busy people. 
And if we choose to say, I'm going to be intentional about my relationship with God, when is the best time for you to devote your time to him? I'm going to tell you for me, and I'm a strong, strong arguer of this too. It's at the very beginning of the day. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. First off, I, I wake up more focused rather than when it's later in the evening. And what I am doing is, and this is the key part of it, I am setting aside that time before I do anything else. Because I'm going to tell you, once my day starts, everything is open to chaos, is the best way I can say it. And then I do not know where that day is going to take me. And then, then, then when I, I used to say, you know what, I'll do it sometime later, I'd be laying my head on the pillow that night thinking, oh, I should have done it. I'm too tired now. Go to sleep. A daily focus on God will help put your daily troubles into proper perspective. And so you have to schedule it. You have to be intentional about it. And what I've found is that if I am focused on that, if I'm focused on heaven, if I'm focused on the finish line, that ultimate goal that we're talking about today, and you place your hope on eternal things, not temporal things, you'll realize the troubles of this earth are very temporary. And what it does is it stirs up in my heart to look even more forward to heaven where there will be no more troubles. Who says amen to that? Listen to this promise in Revelation 21, 3 through 4. And if this doesn't get you excited, you know what? You might as well leave right now. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. I hear that and I say, Lord, I need that today. And then I wake up tomorrow and I'm going to say, God, I need that today. And each and every day, that is going to be my attitude because that is what is going to help me carry on through all of life's problems. And if you don't seek God daily, you can so easily lose that perspective. Because Jesus teaches us this principle in the Sermon on the Mount. Why worry about tomorrow? Tomorrow has enough problems of its own. So God, I need your word to get me through today. Next question. Are you living out the gospel? Are you living out the gospel? We can agree spending that daily time with God is essential, but I think it is worthless unless, unless we know how to live it out. 
to live out our walk. And I think it starts like this. In relation to God and Jesus Christ, how do you view your life? Jesus tells us this parable of a Pharisee. And we know that Pharisees at the time, they were the religious leaders. They were the ones who felt they needed to do each and everything by the book, right? He believed himself to be righteous. And Jesus, in this parable, he contrasts the Pharisee with a tax collector and how different their approach to God was. And Jesus says in Luke 18, 11 through 13, he says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance, dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. As you go through your day, do you view yourself as someone who has arrived or do you still thank God for his mercy daily? Church, we become children of God only by his grace through offering Jesus Christ. And it is that good news that allows us to go into the presence of God, but also it is that presence of God that we are to take into the world to be witnesses of who God is. It requires that we emulate Christ. So you must know him. You must know him deeply and you must be like him. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, he said, my old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when you go out each and every day, as I can imagine you do, before you leave the house, you look in the mirror. Some of you don't like what you see. Some of you are really impressed with what you see. But you're looking in the mirror. And how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as someone who's like, man, I look good today. I got it going on. Or do you look at yourself and you're like, you know, could be better. But when you look at yourself, can you see Christ? Do you see yourself clothed in Christ? And to do that, it requires that effort each day to be reminded that we are no longer to live 
for ourselves, but we are to live for God. And it's not that we are to go out and perform like the greatest actors the world has ever seen, right? It has to come from a genuine place that we know who he is. Because people know when they see something real versus something fake. They know it. So don't fake your walk with the Lord, and I'm not asking you to. I'm asking you to make it true. Because the world will look at you to see whether or not you are living out the gospel. Not just by your successes and your blessings, but as Kelton alluded to about Job, through the trials, right? So can you truly praise God and glorify him in all things? I've seen both in people with their successes and failures, but I'm telling you the world is sitting back and watching and saying, okay, they had this thrown at them, now let's see what they do. They're watching. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, always be joyful. How often? Always. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. How many circumstances? All. All. For this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Amen. Then also, we should have a daily commitment to be a living sacrifice. The scriptures say that Jesus gave himself up for you. Do you understand what that means? He gave himself up for you. That means there was no selfish ambition. There was no agenda. He did solely what was best for you. He gave himself up for you. He went to the cross. He was a sacrifice for you. And Romans 12 also tells us that we likewise should be a sacrifice. But it says something interesting, and I want you to hear it. It's Romans 12.1. Paul says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Before Jesus Christ, there were daily sacrifices made. But they weren't sacrifices of living. They were sacrifices in death, right? And now Paul uses this turn of phrase because a living sacrifice, what it does is it speaks to this daily presentation of yourself. Surrendering your will, surrendering your agenda to the purposes of God and what he wants. In Leviticus chapter 6 verses 8 through 13, we're not going to read it, but it's a great reference for you because it describes the priest's duties of presenting a burnt offering twice a day. They would do a burnt offering in the morning. They would do a burnt offering in the evening. And so what happened was there was always a burnt offering being consumed on the altar. And so that sacrifice was described in two different ways. One, it was a whole sacrifice, not a partial one. So they didn't say, well, let's sacrifice half the animal in the morning and then we'll sacrifice the, the other half the animal in the evening. It was always a whole sacrifice. 
And the other thing we can learn from it is that it was continual. There was something always burning. The fire kept burning. Church, what we can learn from this, present your body to God daily as a living sacrifice because of his mercy on your life, right? And if you do that, because think about this, by all right, we are destined for hell. By all right, but in view of the gospel, we have received his mercy. In light of this, the apostle Paul refers to him as a bondservant. So what he is saying is, because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, I must live for him. So it is our aim, it should be our goal, to keep that fire burning each and every day. Can I get an amen? amen. We should be doing that. But Paul refers to himself as a bondservant. And what he is saying is, because I recognize what God has done for me through his son, I am now bound in service for God because of this mercy I have received. And to truly be a bondservant is one who gives their life to the one they call master every day. Every day. All that to say, there isn't a day where it's like, God, I gave you yesterday. Today is my day. It's my day. I need to take a me day. I need to take a break. I'm telling you, that is a cultural mindset. That's toxic. We should give God each and every day, and not just every day unto the Lord, but we should live contrary to worldly thinking. Second way, finishing well. It's determined based off of how you approach God. And something significant I want to ask you, because if you don't understand this, we are going to be talking about this more and more, and I want you to understand it. Ask yourself this question, are you walking, am I walking in the fear of the Lord? You know, scriptures teach us to have no fear except for the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment, but yet at the same time, Scripture tells us not to fear anything else. 2 Timothy 1.7, it says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And so, where do these things work together? What does that look like? And I'm telling you this, our fear is an appropriation of what has power over us. I want you to hear that again. Our fear is an appropriation of what has power over us. So you need to ask, what am I fearful of? For instance, if you are in Christ, the only one who should have power over you is God alone. And if we believe there is no power greater than God, and we also accept that he has authority over all things. So if we accept 
that upon salvation we become a child of God, there should become no fear of anything in our life but God himself. And I want you to understand something about this fear. It's not like a scary movie kind of fear. Not a haunted house kind of fear. But the fear of knowing that God is in charge. He is my judge. He created me. He is the final authority in my life. So imagine. Imagine you have done something wrong. And your punishment is a capital punishment. It's punishable by death. And you're getting ready. You're going before the judge. And he alone is going to determine your outcome. Whether or not you're going to live or you're going to die. And he is going to weigh all the facts of the case and he is going to make his determination. The feeling that you have of standing before that judge is the appropriate fear of the Lord. That's the appropriate fear of the Lord. Except, we can have comfort and security in knowing if we're living for Christ. Jesus Christ is our mediator. So when the judge, he's weighing all the facts, what happens is that Jesus Christ is sitting right at the right hand of God. And he is reminding God each and every time that Satan accuses you like he tried to accuse Job, right? Like he was wanting to do. Every time he accuses you, you have Jesus sitting at the right hand of God and he is reminding God, no, 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 no. My blood covers that sin. It covers their sin. You can see this play out in Revelation 12. Verses 10 through 11. And so what you need to accept for your life, there is no force on this earth more powerful than God. And so if you accept that, if you choose to believe in his sovereignty, you must also believe in his love. And this is important. Because God is powerful, but you don't need to be scared of him. You shouldn't be scared of him. And I'm going to tell you, a lot of people in our nation, they don't have an appropriate understanding of God because if we call God our Father, there are many who don't have good relationships with their fathers. And so they have trouble how they view him. And I am telling you to view God as the one who holds all authority and power over you, but loves you enough to save you. His grace is sufficient enough for you today that if you fall short of his glory, you can come right back to him claiming the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. But one day, he is going to call all of his people home. And are you going to find yourself faithful? Are you going to find yourself where you have finished well? Lamentations 3, 37 through 38, it says, Who can command things to happen without the Lord's permission? 
Does not the Most High send both calamity and good? The Scripture, what it does is it, it, it affirms God's sovereignty over our actions. Now, most of the pain that you and I experience in this life, it's caused by sinful actions of other people who here have been hurt because of other people, right? And what happens is you can become bitter. And usually that bitterness, whether you realize it or not, it is turned towards God. I want you to hear what Isaac did with this. Isaac, Abraham's son. He had a son named Joseph. And Joseph, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And God, in turn, he takes Joseph in that slavery and he uses him to eventually save a nation. And it came time, eventually, that his brothers were in need. And they went to this nation that Joseph was second in command of. And they needed food. And they didn't realize it was by their brother's provision that they were receiving it. And Joseph created an opportunity to reveal himself to his brothers. I want you to listen to what he says in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Do you see how he chose not to live in bitterness? But he realized that through each and every step, God was in control. Church, God is in control of the difficulties and the pain in your life just as much as he's in control of the good parts of your life. In referencing back to 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks to God in all circumstances. And no matter what bad happens, nothing, and I repeat, nothing can separate us from God. You know, I was debating on skipping this section of Scripture, but I think it's, it's too valuable and important. Romans 8, 38 through 39, Paul says, And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is his love, church, that binds us, so we push on, we continue on for him, and that's where we finish today. Church, finishing well is determined by finishing. Have you ever picked up something you didn't finish? Maybe it was a book. Gentlemen, perhaps it was a project your wife gave you. The Apostle Paul, he refers to our life in Christ as a race. 
He does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He does this in Philippians chapter 3. And then we have a verse that we've already used in 2 Timothy 4.7. Have you ever ran a race and not finished? You probably don't want to raise your hand to that answer. I know people that have gone out for half marathons, they've gone out for full marathons, and they didn't know what they were getting into. And they gave up. The most important thing about finishing this race is to understand the race that you are running and finish it. Like that book you read, that project you start, this race is worthless as incomplete. Can't you agree? And so through everything good and everything bad, we must keep our eyes on that finish line, that goal we are headed towards. So when you keep focus, that puts our daily life into proper perspective. Not allowing ourselves to get distracted by the world or thinking too big sometimes. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Perhaps we are enamored too much with the big thing that God might be calling us to do rather than just being obedient and bonded to his will for today. So we can have the best of intentions even in God and still get distracted. Or maybe your trials or successes might deter you from the path God has you on. I don't know if you've ever ran a race, and Kelton, if you could come forward. In 2012, I was up to running six miles a day, and I got plantar fasciitis. And I remember when I was just first starting out running, and I remember that mile, the first time I ran a mile, seemed excruciating. You know, there was about that sixth minute where I just wanted to give up, and my heart rate is beating at that time, because I was running pretty hard, about 180, and I, I had the labored breathing, and I could, I could feel the, the pain in my calves, and I could feel it in my shins, and, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I need to slow down or stop. But then eventually, I just kept on running, and I broke through some pain. And then I was able to stretch it out to two miles, and then eventually to three miles, then eventually to four. And what would happen is, sure enough, I could count on it almost every time I would get some pain in my shins, and I would get some tightness in my calves, and then sometimes my breathing would get out of control, and I'd need to remind myself to breathe normally. But once I started to do that, I could push through. And what I realized is when I focused on everything I should be doing, that pain would subside. It would go away. You know, the Bible says that if you're going to run this race, you need to remove everything that slows you down. Listen to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is our last verse for today. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially 
the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Why do you think confession and repentance is so important for the believer? It's because what you're doing is you're stripping off a weight. You are outing this thing in your life and it releases you, it sets you free. And I'm telling you, you have an opportunity to cast that off. Cast that off and be that man or woman for God who says, I am going to give my all. That way, when the day eventually comes, that when you have died, you are standing before the judgment seat of God and he looks at you and he sees his son resting upon you. He sees that sacrifice and he says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's why I run. So I can hear that. And church, you gotta give him each day. You gotta give him everything that you have. And you got to strip off every weight that is going to slow you down. So what I want you to do right now is I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to be open to the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. To ask, what's holding me back? What's slowing me down? What do I need to remove? What do I need to cast off? I promise you with an open heart, he will reveal it to you. Just be open to let him speak. Some of you have some heavy things weighing you down. It might not just be sin. You might be facing some demonic oppression and other hindrances, maybe sickness. And you want to make a declaration, I'm casting that off today. I am not letting that thing weigh me down. You want to make a declaration today. I'm going to ask you to come down here in a moment to remove that weight. But I'm going to ask everyone right now to stand. Because in this room, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there is nothing that should do our heart more good than seeing people remove the weight and free themselves up to be able to run fully with Christ. So we're going to praise Him. And as we praise Him, if that's you, if you need to remove...
I want you to come down front. I want you to stand with someone in agreement in prayer. But today's the day I cast that thing off. If that's you, let's go to battle together.